This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips, and in this episode of Rear Vision, gambling under the gun. The Albanese government's putting more restrictions on gambling advertisements. Forget that, fellas. Gambling advertisements currently come with this warning. Gamble responsibly. But research suggests it doesn't work very well, and so from next year, it'll be replaced. To ensure that we're minimising problem gambling and online wagering. Seven new messages will be put on rotation instead, including chances are you're about to lose. Casino inquiries, cashless gambling cards, new laws on gambling advertising. The gambling industry in Australia is under the microscope as never before. And it's not surprising. We Australians lose $25 billion a year on gambling. And it's the people who can least afford it who lose the most. In this rear vision, we'll see how far the tide has turned and what needs to be done to address the problems associated with Australia's gambling addiction. Let's start with casinos, recently the subject of various state inquiries and royal commissions. The first of these began in January 2020 with the Bergen Inquiry in New South Wales. The casino inquiries really started with a trickle of whistleblower accounts which made it into the public sphere initially via Andrew Wilkie. Andrew Wilkie set up a, I guess you could say, a whistleblower service called PokeyLeaks and invited people with inside knowledge to share their knowledge. And then he, generally speaking, tried to get it tabled in Parliament. Not always successfully, it must be said, because the major parties opposed it. I'm Charles Livingston. I'm an Associate Professor in the School of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Monash University. I'm a gambling researcher. My principal interest is in gambling policy reform to minimise and prevent harm. What happened then, of course, was that you had a stream of whistleblowers coming forward and they were eventually persuaded to speak to the media, particularly the nine newspapers and to the ABC. So what we had was a trickle of information about what was going on at Crown, particularly in Melbourne, but at the other casinos as well. And of course, the I guess you could say the stench around Crown was such that when Nick McKenzie at The Age started looking and found all these people willing to speak, and I have to say the ABC 7.30 report and other ABC journalists did a lot of work on this too, what happened was it, was it was like lifting a rock. What was revealed by doing that was quite shocking. And it became untenable for the authorities to continue to ignore this. Although, interestingly enough, the first inquiry out of the box was the New South Wales inquiry headed by Patricia Bergen, which was examining the suitability of Crown to actually open the casino that they were building at Barangaroo on Sydney's foreshore. And that, of course, really blew the lid open and we discovered that everything we thought was going on was in fact going on. We had criminal infiltration, we had attempts by people with very powerful triad connections to acquire shares in the in the company. We had difficulties with adhering to the law around money laundering, or difficulties, they just breached them, and a host of other malfeasance. That, in turn, led to inexorable pressure on the Victorian government to announce an inquiry into Crown, which they were reluctant to do, it must be said, although in the end they came to the party and instituted a royal commission headed by former Judge Finkelstein, and that not only revealed the same sort of malfeasance as had been revealed by Bergen, but Finkelstein also looked at their record on so-called responsible gambling measures and came to the view that you know, despite claiming to be world's best practice, the opposite was in fact the case, that they were ruthlessly exploiting people in order to 
acquire all the funds they could from those who were being exploited. So that's not just the high rollers, of course, but the ordinary people, the grind, as they call them, that make up most of the revenue for most casinos in Australia. Inquiries into casinos in Western Australia and Queensland followed. Yes, there was an inquiry in Western Australia because Crown operates in WA. Now, that found uh, similarly to the other two, but what it also found was that the regulation of casino gambling, in particular in Western Australia, was appalling. It was conducted a bit like the Keystone Cops, only less humorously, involving close social connections between the regulators and those they were regulating. There were opposite numbers that were at the casino. They went on fishing trips together and they didn't actually realise that that was probably not a good look, that the conflict of interest inherent in that was appalling. So they've, they've done a series of recommendations from that Royal Commission which essentially look at re-regulating the system. I must say all of the inquiries into Crown ended up with a new system of regulation in place. And that was followed, of course, by the next round of revelations, again coming from the press initially, with Star in Sydney being the focus. And that inquiry discovered exactly the same things. In fact, if anything, the degree of malfeasance was probably greater. They were very eager to pick up where Crown had left off, it would seem. And, you know, we're talking about $900 million worth of effectively fraud against the China Union credit card system, which forbids using its card for gambling purposes and and star was as crown had before but star was actively persuading clients to use the credit card as though it were a, a hospitality transaction but then using those funds to give the patrons chips etc so you know that's nearly a billion dollars worth of money laundering just through that fairly fraudulent activity and of course they were doing exactly the same things with vulnerable people exploiting them they were People who were barred from the casino in Sydney were being encouraged to go to their casinos in Queensland and, and so forth. And then, of course, the Queensland government had to do an inquiry because they couldn't be left out of it. And, of course, that also found similarly. And I think their decision is still pending, but effectively the same difficulties that were revealed from, from Crown and Star in the other states were revealed. And I understand there's also now an inquiry in South Australia. And following on from that... The Crime Commission in New South Wales eventually came to the view that money laundering in clubs and pubs through poker machines was also rife. They instigated an inquiry which has just handed down its report in the last month and that report found widespread use of criminal proceeds to gamble and also money laundering at a low level compared to say the casinos. I mean it's not the place you go to launder $20 million but it's a place you go to launder 5000 or $7,000 which of course perfectly suits local drug dealing and so on, and encourages crime because apparently, according to the Crime Commission, many of those people who are addicted to gambling actually resort to drug dealing and other criminal offences in order to get the money to fund their gambling habit. So sadly, what we see is that the main revenue streams for casinos are money laundering, that is harvesting something from the proceeds of crime, and exploiting vulnerable people. And, you know, anything else they make on top of that is the cream. But that seems to be the core of their revenue source. Criminologist Alex Simpson says billions of dollars are laundered in Australia each year. Quite simply, the proceeds of crime need to be cleaned in order to kind of disassociate itself with its criminal past and in order to make it appear like it's come from a legitimate source. This can be done in many ways. Often money can be washed or cleaned through property, 
or business investments, but also gambling and increasingly the use of casinos or poker machines is an incredibly lucrative way um, of cleaning money. I mean, it's estimated that about 13 billion Australian dollars um, is laundered within Australia each year, which is kind of a huge amount. And this all has to be done somewhere. Within casinos, and quite simply, if you walk in with a bag of dirty cash, that is money coming from the proceeds of crime, you can gamble up to $10,000 within casinos in New South Wales before it has to be reported to Austrac, the anti-money laundering regulation. So still a lot of money which can be done under that cap. Um, and if you do this enough times, you can quite simply launder the money which you need to have cleaned. The new regulations have clamped down on this to make it harder. But what evidence has shown is that more often criminal enterprises are going to pokies in the clubs and pubs across the cities, but also across regional New South Wales, where the cap is $5,000. So again, this seems to be still relatively high. Um, it is the highest in the country, except for the ACT, where there is no cap. But again, you could gamble $4,999, you know, operate the two, three machines at a time and do this all day and, and launder or clean as much money as you can fit into the pokey machines. If you were to put money into the poker machine, you only have to kind of gamble $1, $5 of this. And then if you were to lose it, you lose it, but then you can cash the rest out and it would turn the rest of your funds to you. So this therefore cleans it and you can do this time and time again to make money appear to come as a receipt out of winnings, where really all you're doing kind of putting money into the machine, placing one bet, losing, winning, doesn't matter, and taking the rest out. And the same principle applies for casinos. You can walk in, you can convert up to $10,000 into chips, gamble just $5, $10 on a roulette wheel. Doesn't matter whether you win or lose, return to the cashier's teller counter and claim the rest as, again, inverted commas, winnings. Crown has been deemed unfit to operate the VIP gaming venue at Barangaroo. Lawyers assisting the inquiry into Sydney's casino have declared the Star Entertainment Group is not suitable to hold a casino licence. Crown are more than on notice. Their licence will be terminated and it will terminate in two years' time unless and until they can demonstrate that they are fit and proper to hold such a licence. Despite these findings, the casinos are still operating and not a single individual has been charged with any crime. For whatever reason, none of the authorities have recommended that the casinos be shut down. So Crown had its licence to operate in Sydney withheld until it could show that it was on the path to recovery. And it's now opened. It opened a little later than it intended, a couple of months later, but it's still there and it's operating. Relatively low key, but nonetheless it is operating. Star never shut for a second. Crown in Melbourne never shut for a second. Crown in Perth never shut for a second. The Star casinos in Brisbane and the Gold Coast never shut for a second. Star was fined $100 million about a month ago for its various malfeasance. Crown was fined $80 million last year for money laundering, China Union credit pay breaches, and then another $120 million in the last couple of weeks for effectively what we could call exploiting vulnerable people, not adhering to their responsible gambling practices and so on. But none of them shut for a second. Even though Star's licence has been suspended, they have a special manager in place who is overseeing the operations. That person now holds the licence, but all the proceeds of the 
gambling business, of course, and the other businesses go straight back to the company. In Melbourne, Crown has a special manager in place, and that person is overseeing their operations for two years, at the end of which he will give a report to the regulator who will then decide whether Crown should continue to operate or not. So effectively, you know, although very significant sums of money have been imposed on these operators as fines, not a single casino has actually shut its store for a second. The opening of Barangaroo was delayed for a couple of months, but that's about it. And certainly no individual, to my knowledge, has been prosecuted or indeed certainly not convicted of any offence in relation to what are clearly, in some cases, blatant criminal offences. Take this example from the AFL's official wagering partner, Sportsbet, which aired 10 minutes before last year's grand final. Excitement's fever pitch not far away. Can't split them, still the punters. 50-50, even money for the Cats and the Tigers. I think we should be looking at a phased-in restriction on gambling companies from advertising in the first instance during sports. But ultimately, I just don't see that there's a, a place for advertising, for gambling on our televisions or radios, full stop. The federal government regulates online gambling and the broadcast advertising of sports betting through its control of telecommunications, although the online sports betting companies themselves are licensed by the states and territories. As a result of a High Court decision in 2008, online gambling has exploded. So what we've got is we've got a situation where a company that wants to offer online wagering will be licensed in one state. In Australia, in fact, mostly they're licensed in the Northern Territory, which is a low taxing and I would argue low regulatory burden jurisdiction for those people. And these bookies operating out of the Northern Territory, scooping up money left, right and centre, mostly from the other states and territories, particularly New South Wales and Victoria. The overhead cost of establishing a new bookie is not that high. You just have to have a set of servers located in the Territory. You could have your head office wherever you wanted as long as your servers are in the Northern Territory if that's where you're licensed. And then you start offering wages with enough capital in place to ensure that you can pay out if you get caught on a run. So effectively we, we ended up with a whole bunch of new startup bookies which has gradually been whittled down now until we have sort of a couple of really big operators, Tabcorp and Sportsbet. They, between them, control around 90% of the market and the rest of it is scooped up by these smaller operators who are trying to find a place in the market. Now, in order to find a place in the market and indeed to maintain market share and to scoop up new participants in their business, the companies have been advertising ferociously on television and particularly in relation to sports. So the Victorian Responsible Gambling Foundation, using data from industry, tells us that there were 948 TV advertisements every day on average in Victoria in 2021 for gambling products, online gambling, and that the industry had spent $287 million on advertising in that year. So what we're looking at is one of the top three advertisers in Australia is now gambling, online gambling companies, and they are bombarding us with ads, particularly during sport. In fact, as I said earlier, there's 948 ads per day for these wagering companies, but four times as many 
per hour on average during sporting broadcasts than in other coverage. So what we're looking at is sport having been really dominated by advertising. So if you watch a football game, it is very difficult to avoid them. And although there is a, a code in practice which prohibits them from showing gambling ads from five minutes before the start of the game until five minutes after the end of the game, there's an 8.30 watershed after which it's pretty much unlimited. So if you're watching a Friday night football game, for example, then you will find that you know by 8.30 in the AFL, it will be just about quarter time. And of course in the NRL, it'll be half time. And so the bombardment can begin and for many parents, this has proven to be you know, a nightmare because you've got kids now who, having been subjected to this bombardment of advertising, when they're talking about football or cricket or whatever, they refer to the odds rather than the form of the team or the player or whatever and become completely familiar with the whole mechanism of gambling and in many cases appear to translate that into a harmful habit as soon as they can get hold of a smartphone, put an app on it and put some credit on it. I'm Dr Hannah Pitt. I'm a Vic Health Research Fellow at Deakin University. Hannah Pitt's research into the effects of gambling advertising has focused on children aged 8 to 16. So the majority of research that has been done has looked at the impact of marketing, specifically for sports betting, and the impact it has on children. And what we know is that marketing is highly influential on the attitudes and consumption intentions of children. We find that children tell us that they think gambling advertising makes gambling seem fun and easy, and that they're really excited to try gambling. We find that gambling marketing has a huge influence over young people's attitudes about gambling and so we really know that it's having quite a big effect, especially due to the way it normalises gambling. So young people perceive it to be quite a normal activity that lots of people are engaging in and we know that to not actually be the case. Very few people regularly engage in sports betting and so we know it's concerning because young people are perceiving it to be something that everyone's doing and it's something that they want to try. And so we know that the more normal a product is perceived to be, the more likely people want to try that product and the more likely for harm to occur. Do sports betting companies actually target young people with their advertising? No, I would never say that the gambling industry targets young people specifically. But what we do know is that there's a range of strategies that young people find very appealing. So you'll notice that sports betting companies often use a lot of humour, bright colours, all things that young people are really quite attracted to. One of the big strategies that we're seeing at the moment is the use of celebrity endorsements and ex-athletes. And so young people really perceive these people to be role models. They think they're quite credible and trustworthy. So when they start supporting Supporting and being aligned to these sports betting brands, we notice quite a big impact that it has on young people thinking quite positively about the brand and about gambling in general. Currently, online gambling companies have to include the tagline, gamble responsibly in their advertisements. In September, the Albanese government announced that from early next year, they'll have to run a set of new messages. Seven new messages will be put on rotation instead, including chances are you're about to lose, what's gambling really costing you, and imagine what you could be buying instead. Think, is this a bet you really want to place, will appear on betting apps, while you win some, you lose more, will feature on broadcast advertisements. 
Yeah, so we know the gamble responsibly message is not very effective at all. In some instances, people think it's actually quite stigmatising because, of course, people really struggle to gamble responsibly. There, There is no real understanding of how to do that. And instead, it's quite harmful to the community to continuously hear those messages. We hear from young people themselves that they're very sceptical of the message gamble responsibly. We've seen that there's been very recent updates where there's been a new suite of messages that will become implemented by the federal government. Unfortunately, I still just don't think they're tackling the real issues here. I think they may be an alternative that isn't really going to make much change. They are still very driven by personal responsibility messages. And we know from the community that what they actually want to see is honest information about the risks associated with the products rather than these more softer behaviour personal responsibility, individual messages that we're seeing constantly from the government and which really reinforce similar messages from the gambling industry. The clubs and pubs that rely on poker machines for their income operate as a powerful political lobby group. They're also a source of tax revenue and political party donations. In 2012, the Gillard government abandoned a gambling reform bill in the face of the threat from pubs and clubs to mount a marginal seat campaign against her minority government. But we're now seeing a shift in the wind in New South Wales that may lead to the introduction of a cashless gaming card. And also in Tasmania, where the Liberal government surprised everyone with the announcement of a mandatory pre-commitment scheme in September. To our next story, the state government has taken a bold gamble to challenge the pokies lobby that once backed its re-election. Tasmania is set to introduce a hard cap on yearly pokies spending. Gaming critics say it will protect the state's most vulnerable problem gamblers. But it's been met with fury from the industry. In one of the Hobart suburbs where Tasmanians lose the most on pokies, there's support for the change. I think it's going to save a lot of people a lot of money because there's too many people going broke. I mean, it's like anything else. People don't realise a limit or et cetera, and, you know, yeah, they tend to, you know, spend money that they don't have. At the last Tasmanian election but one, the Labor Party announced that it would remove poker machines from pubs altogether if it were elected at the end of the existing arrangements, which was next year, 2023. So... They were soundly defeated, and they were soundly defeated mainly because the clubs, the pubs movement, the Tasmanian Hospitality Association, spent unheralded amounts of money on supporting the Liberals, who of course were opposed to this process. And they were supported in that by donations from gambling operators on the mainland and so on. And of course it became clear that the pubs were able to mobilise quite significant resources, including you know having messages in every hotel, including hanging banners off their hotels, announcing that the end, you know, civilization would end were these reforms to be instigated, etc. And that was successful and the Liberals won. So it was interesting to see recently, in the last month, that the Liberal Party announced out of the blue that it was going to proceed to implement a pre-commitment system across the state starting by 2024. Now, That came out of the blue. It certainly caught the Tasmanian Hospitality Association by surprise and I suspect the Labor Party by surprise. But as I understand it, what has happened is that the Labor Party has now swung in behind this. And this sort of bipartisanship is the key to overcoming the political stranglehold that this, you know, organised gambling industry has on reforming the way gambling is regulated in Australia. 
So pre-commitment, or as it's being referred to in New South Wales as a cashless gaming card, if it's done properly, it will have a, a big effect on money laundering and it will have a big effect on harmful gambling. And it works simply by requiring people who want to gamble on poker machines to establish an account to do so. That account has to be linked to a bank account and you transfer funds into the account from your bank account and importantly it enables you to set a limit on how much you're prepared to lose. In the Tasmanian case they've announced that they want to introduce statutory limits of $100 a day so you can't gamble more than $100 a day or $300 a week or $5,000 a year. And what that means of course is that people who are struggling with a gambling addiction or are in the early stages of one will have a tool with which they can manage that addiction. And this, of course, has also been introduced in Norway and in Sweden, where it has been quite successful in reducing the amount of harm from that form of gambling. In New South Wales, what we've got is an unclear proposition at the moment about what constitutes cashless gaming. So I'm sure the Clubs New South Wales would welcome a cashless gaming system in which you simply tap your smartphone against a terminal on the poker machine and download your bank account into it. But... Again, an effective system would be the antithesis of that. It would require a separate account to be established for each gambler. There'd be a requirement to identify yourself correctly and properly, and you would set a daily, monthly, annual limit, not only in terms of dollars, but in terms of time. For many people, one of the biggest consequences of their harmful gambling is that it swallows up vast quantities of their time, and that can be really detrimental to personal relationships, family life you know, relationships with kids and so on. Hannah Pitt says we can also look overseas to see how other countries are managing sports betting advertising and sponsorship. Yeah, we are seeing that other countries are taking much bigger steps in terms of restricting gambling advertising. In the UK, they're looking at banning celebrity endorsements and in other countries, they're looking to ban gambling advertising on sports jerseys and and sports sponsorship. However, we're not seeing any sort of movement like that from the Australian government. What we are seeing is that some teams in the AFL and the NRL who are rejecting sports betting sponsorship. However, what the big issue is, is that the overarching sporting codes continue to keep those sponsorship deals with the big sports betting companies. So it's a very conflicting message when you've got some teams that are willing to reject that sponsorship, but their overarching code continues to take that money. Alex Simpson says the current debate over all these things, cashless gambling cards and pokies, gambling advertising and sponsorship, casinos and crime, gives us a chance to look at the place of gambling in our culture. These casinos are very much emblematic of the broader gambling industry. They take in a relatively small percentage of the revenue, but they are the most visible and most prestigious institutions that can sit right at the heart of our cities across Australia. So the fact that these have been brought into question really sheds a light of all that lies below. And it kind of does bring into question the relationships that um, gambling has within Australian culture, um, the ways in which poker machines are kind of heavily spread out unevenly across the cities. So we're seeing the most densest rollout of poker machines in the poorest neighbourhoods. And again, this is by no means an accident. And it really speaks to the inequalities that kind of run through our society here. I think it's really fascinating that we are having this debate now. And 
kind of questioning the centrality of gambling within Australian culture, but also within sports culture and politics. And there is growing recognition that something needs to be done, and such as you know attitudes around tobacco advertising and its sale has shifted and changed. Hopefully, this will be the start of a conversation where we start to see gambling in a similar light and creating bans on advertising and really to have heavy restrictions on how and who can gamble and to try and minimise harm fundamentally. Dr Alex Simpson, a criminologist from Macquarie University. The other guests were Dr Charles Livingston, an associate professor in the School of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Monash University, and Dr Hannah Pitt, a research fellow with Vic Health at Deakin University. This Rear Vision was produced by me, Kerry Phillips, and sound engineer Simon Branthwaite for ABC RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.